the Apostles' Creed. Um, this is an ancient Christian document that is a statement of faith, a statement of belief. It was written around 250 A.D. Uh, when Christianity was still relatively new, still relatively new to the Roman Empire. And what the early church found out is that they needed to communicate in a really crystallized, clear, concise way um, exactly what it is they believed. Um, many pagans within the Roman Empire accused Christians of being atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods. And so they said, well, you guys are, are non-believers, you're atheists. Um, Orthodox Jews accused Christians of all sorts of heresy and, um, and so forth. So there was a need to say, this is who we are, this is what we believe. Um, and one of the earliest efforts of them doing that is the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in a more uh, liturgical um, or traditional church, then uh, you may know this statement of faith. It may sound very familiar to you. I know that by the time I graduated high school, um, I grew up in one of those churches, and I could recite this thing forwards and backwards uh, because we, we recited it every, every Sunday morning. Um, so <clears throat> the plan is for us to work through the creed kind of line by line, um, and the goal is to provide scriptural support for what the creed says. In other words, the hope is to show how this creedal statement is, in fact, a biblical statement, faithfully reflecting what Scripture itself teaches. So let's read through this entire statement. My message this morning is only going to focus on the first four words of the creed, I believe in God. Um, but let's read through this entire thing. Uh, it should be uh, in your bulletin when you walked in, um, a little, little handout. And uh, I'm going to work off of the way it's translated here on this. Um, so let's read all together. Think we can do it? All right. <clears throat> Three, two, one, go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Well done. There's a type of story that has recently become so common, it's almost turned into its own literary genre. These stories have become so pervasive and popular, they could almost have their own section in the bookstore or be their own category on whatever podcast app you use. What I'm talking about are often referred to as deconstruction stories or deconversion narratives. These stories which show up in books and essays and podcasts, they're very much like a memoir. The author is looking back over their life or looking back over a certain time in their life, 
when they deconstructed their faith, when they deconverted from religious belief. They once had faith in God. They once believed in one religion or another. But then at some point, for varying reasons, they go through a process whereby they eventually stop believing, or at least stop believing as they once did. And the people sharing their deconstruction stories, they are very often held up as sort of these champions of authenticity, kind of heroes for their honesty. And many of these stories are great. Some of them are fascinating and and helpful even, I would say. Many others, however, not quite so encouraging. But let me give you an example of one of these that I think is uh, kind of exemplary for what is typical. This one is from an author named S.A. Joyce. He just goes by his initials, S.A. Joyce. And he wrote an essay entitled, One Night I Prayed to Know the Truth, The Next Morning I Discovered I Was an Atheist. It's the name of the essay. He says this, quote, In the years after leaving the military, I went back to college, not as a serious attempt to earn a degree, but just to improve myself. And during this time, I came across and pieced together bit by bit a humanistic set of values which turned out to be far more self-consistent and relevant to the modern world than a petrified decalogue of biblical taboo. And it was becoming clear to me that the universe behaved pretty much as might be expected if God didn't exist, or at least He didn't care. And it gradually dawned upon me that in the grand schemes of things, there was in fact no grand scheme. God performed no observable function and had no valid purpose, so the question entered my mind, what is a God without purpose and for which there is no evidence? Non-existent became the obvious answer. The blinders of dogma and the yoke of dread were finally off. For me, the universe now shone in a wholesome new light. The comforting glow of reality was no longer distorted either by the almost cartoonish artificial glory of myth and miracle, nor by the dreadful glare of hellfire. I was free. And there you have it, Mr. Joyce's testimony, as it were, of deconverting. It's his story of liberation from belief. One night I prayed to know the truth. The next morning I discovered I was an atheist. Well, this morning we are, as I said, focusing on these first four words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means to believe. So a creed is, as we've said, a statement of belief, a statement of faith. And so it's no surprise the creed starts out just this way, I believe in God. Credo in Deum is the Latin So if this is our confession of faith, I believe in God, if this is our statement of belief, credo in deum, what are we to make of all these deconstruction stories? What are we to make of Mr. Joyce's claim that there is no evidence for God and there is no reason for God? Well, the biblical perspective on this question is to liken Mr. Joyce's atheistic position to that of a fish who doesn't believe in water, or to a monkey who doesn't believe in the tree that he's hanging from. 
Because you see, to reject God and His existence is to reject the possibility of a rational, coherent, purposeful, orderly world. Let me say that again. To reject God and His existence is to reject even the possibility of a rational, coherent, purposeful, orderly world. If you deny God's existence, then all we're left with is the random, chance-driven, impersonal properties of the universe. And in such a scenario, there is no grounds for rational thought. There is no grounds for moral objectivity. In a godless world, in the atheistic vision, everything is stripped of meaning. Not only are our relationships and daily lives stripped of meaning, even simple math equations like 2 plus 2 equal 4 have no meaning in an atheistic worldview. That's why the author of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity apart from a God-centered vision of life. So it's ironic for Mr. Joyce and others like him to use rational thought to deny God's existence because in the very process, they are also denying the possibility of rationality in the first place. That's why I say he's like a fish who doesn't believe in water or a monkey who doesn't believe in the tree he's standing on. Let me put some scripture to what I'm trying to say. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So Solomon is saying that the first step towards true, solid knowledge is fearing the Lord, the fear of the Lord being an acknowledgement of Him, a reverence before Him. When our hearts are humbled before God in reverence and awe, then we have rightly begun the process towards obtaining knowledge. Otherwise, if we deny the Lord, if we reject God, then there is no basis for knowledge in the first place. Again, because in a godless universe, everything is chance, everything is random, everything is impersonal and meaningless chaos. We are just molecules who happen to be bumping into one another. But if there is a God whose very being is an objective standard of truth and morality, and if He has designed and ordered and structured our world, then there is the possibility that we can discern truth, and there is the possibility that we can discover how He has designed things, whether in mathematics or the sciences. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But if we miss this foundational step of fearing God, If we miss this step, then we may know a lot of stuff, but we won't have any basis for it actually being true. Here's another scripture that speaks to this point. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. King David is pretty straightforward here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So again, this is the response to the atheistic position. To deny God's existence is foolish. Now, this doesn't mean that atheists can't be intelligent. Many atheists are very intelligent, in fact, and many of them have a lot of intellectual horsepower. So David is not saying that non-believers are stupid, necessarily. He's saying they're fools. It's foolish to think that scientific and mathematical knowledge is perceivable and obtainable, and yet there's no ordered design to our world. 
Everything is impersonal and driven by blind chance. Again, it's like a fish who doesn't believe in water. That fish may know how to find food. They may know how to carry out migration patterns and the breeding process. It might be a very smart fish otherwise, but if he denies the existence of water, then he denies the very possibility of any of his knowledge existing in the first place. That's the situation with the person who says there is no God. They are a fool. To put it in terms of our main point this morning, believing in God is essential to possessing truth. Believing in God is essential to possessing truth. The very beginning of knowledge, the foundational step towards true truth is the fear of the Lord. If you fail to fear the Lord, if you refuse to believe in God, then you may know a lot of stuff, but according to the Bible, you are a fool. Because your knowledge, your claims about what you know have no philosophical or ethical basis apart from God. So here's the question I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about. How can we know there is a God? Thus far, I've critiqued unbelief, why it is irrational and foolish, but let's say something positive here. How do we positively know that there is a God? Well, three things, and they all start with C, so I hope you enjoy this preacher alliteration effort here. How do we know there is a God? Creation, conscience, and conversion. So first, creation tells us there is a God. Listen to these verses from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. These words were written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and he says this, "'The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth.'" For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So Paul here is talking about unbelieving people, people who do not believe in God, or at least don't believe in the true God. And he says, what can be known about God is plain to them. The knowledge of God is plainly clear to their perception. How is this so? Because, second half of verse 19, God has shown it to them. He's shown to them what can be known about him. God has shown to everyone what can be known about him. He has not hidden himself. He is not imperceptible. Well, in what ways has God shown himself to us? Verse 20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, aha, here it is, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The apostle says that creation bears witness that there is a creator. The things that have been made testify to their maker that he is eternally powerful, that he is divine in nature. And so Paul concludes in verse 20, they are without excuse. In other words, we have no excuse not to recognize the knowledge of God available to us in creation. None of us will be able to stand before God in judgment and say, God, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. You didn't give me enough evidence to acknowledge and honor your existence. No, the apostle says, what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us 
His invisible attributes are made visible ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We believe in God because of creation. Another Old Testament verse puts it this way, Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. King David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims God's handiwork. Day after day pours out speech. Night after night reveals knowledge. David says the heavens speak of God. The skies proclaim God's work. Speech about God is poured out every day. Knowledge about God is revealed to us every night. I've heard it said that this is a confrontational view of creation. In other words, creation confronts us with the knowledge of God. Creation forces us to decide, will we worship our Creator God in accordance with His power and divinity on display in creation, or will we explain this all away and find some rationalization to explain away our existence as some sort of cosmic accident that needed no Creator? Several years ago, I had a friend who was a professing atheist. He was a really bright guy. He was an engineering student at the school we went to. He was a kind friend. <clears throat> we had many conversations about Jesus and spirituality and science and so forth. And at one point, my friend took a trip to the beach, to the Gulf Coast. And afterwards, he came back to school. We were in university at the time. He came back to school and told me about an experience he had during his trip. He was standing on the beach one evening during his trip. He must have been alone, just kind of taking it all in and observing the environment, reflecting. And all of a sudden, he became aware of this profound sense of gratitude. As he gazed upon the power and the vastness of the Gulf waters, as he thought about the complexity of the sea life within those waters, as he observed the brightly colored, dazzling evening sky, as he felt the Gulf breeze whistling around him, gratitude bubbled to the surface of his heart. But at the same time, as he told me about this, you could also tell he was kind of sad. Because as an atheist, despite feeling gratitude, he had no one to be grateful to. Our world is just a cosmic accident in the atheistic, naturalistic worldview. You see, in that moment, God was confronting my friend. He was showing himself to him, as it were, saying, Behold, look, my power, my beauty, my divinity are on display. But my friend's heart just wasn't quite ready to receive it. What about you? What about you? Have you received the knowledge of God in creation? Have you directed your gratitude and gladness towards our Creator God? Paul spoke of, in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, he spoke about how we have this tendency to suppress the truth about God. There's something in us that resists the knowledge of God because we want to be God. We want to rule our lives, but I want to ask you, how's that working out for you? How's it working out trying to be Lord of your own life? 
our arrogance, our fear can get in the way of acknowledging our Creator God and surrendering to Him. But friends, we were not made to live like that. We were not made to live self-autonomously, ruling our own lives. We were made to live in humble submission and glad worship before Him who created all things. How do we know there is a God? Creation. Secondly, conscience. Conscience. Not too unlike creation. Our conscience bears witness that there is a God. What do I mean by our conscience. What I mean is that there is a law within us. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul calls it the law that is written on our hearts, as opposed to the law externally written on, for example, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Paul says that we have the law written on our hearts. In other words, we each have this ingrained inner sense of right and wrong. That's our conscience. And the logic goes that if there is a universal law of right and wrong, then there must be a lawgiver to substantiate that law. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, Mere Christianity. He's going to show how this inner law shows up in everyday life. He says, quote, Everyone has heard people arguing. Sometimes their arguments sound funny, sometimes their arguments sound unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say in these everyday arguments. For example, they say things like this, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or they'll say, that's my seat, I was there first. Or, leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Or, why should you shove in first? Or, give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. Or, come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people. Children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to subjectively please him. Rather, he is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to heck with your standard. No, nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against that standard. So again, Lewis is just sharing how every human, whether rich or poor, religious or irreligious, young or old, each of us has this innate sense of a standard of how people should behave. Um, if you have happened to have had the opportunity of had, having more than one children, then you have seen this perfectly on display whenever you're trying to feed them. Cheerios, for example. So we've got more than one, and I'll get the bag of Cheerios, and I will shove my hand into the Cheerio box, give one of them a pile of Cheerios. I'll shove my hand back into the Cheerio box, same hand, same size, able to grab roughly the same amount, grab some more, give it to the other child, and then almost inevitably you will hear, he has more than me! And I mean, we're talking about Cheerios, like but it's like these guys are constitutional lawyers. I mean, their sense of right and wrong is, is razor sharp. They have this real sense of, of equity, of justice, of what is fair and what is not fair. Where, where did they learn this? 
That's the point. They didn't learn this. They have it inside of them. It's this innate ability to discern what is equitable, to discern what is right and wrong. And Lewis' question as he continues that chapter is, where did this come from? Where did this internal law come from? Is it just the byproduct of chance and the random process of naturalistic biological evolution? If so, then our consciences are ultimately groundless and the moral direction they give us is meaningless. But perhaps behind the law of our hearts is the moral lawgiver, namely God, who created us. And if that's the case, then what our consciences tell us does matter. So think with me. When have you heard your conscience speaking to you? When have you heard your conscience condemning something you did wrong? Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something you said. You hurt someone. You let yourself down even. You lied. You cheated. You stole. You abused. And then you felt this sense of shame. Maybe you have something like that ongoing right now still in your life. Well, I want to encourage you. That message that what you're doing is wrong, that sense of shame for your transgressions, that didn't come from nowhere. The law of our hearts testifies to the moral law giver. Our conscience bears witness that there is a God who we will give account to. How do we know that there is a God? Creation, conscience, and finally, conversion. Conversion. There's an old Protestant catechism. It was written in 1689. If you're not familiar, a catechism is just a way of teaching Christian doctrine through questions and answers. And the third question in this particular catechism is, how do we know that there is a God? It's the same question I'm asking for us this morning. How do we know that there is a God? And the answer reads like this, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declares that there is a God, but His Word and Spirit only do effectually reveal God unto us for our salvation. So that first part of the answer touches on our first two points. The light of nature in man refers to our moral conscience, and the works of God refers to God's work in creation. Both our conscience and creation declare, the catechism says, that there is a God, but that's not enough. No one is ever converted to true faith in God by creation and conscience alone. Because as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, we have this tragic tendency to suppress the truth. The truth about God, the truth about ourselves. So the only thing that will effectually reveal Him unto us is His Word and His Spirit active upon our lives. Listen to the way the Apostle puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. He writes this, in their case, there being unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light sh- who said, let light shine out of darkness, He has shown in our hearts also to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So no matter the knowledge of God revealed in creation, no matter the knowledge of God revealed in our conscience, there is a blindness to our minds, the apostle says. There is a darkening to our hearts. You see, God created our world good and beautiful. God originally created our world good and beautiful, but there is this alien power called sin. It has invaded God's world and it has infected each one of our hearts, blinding us, darkening us. But through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, God lets light shine in our hearts, giving us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I call on you now, receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Here's the good news. Here's the good news that can bring us to life. Jesus of Nazareth, roughly 2,000 years ago, he lived the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus' conscience was never pricked because of something he said or something he did. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, a life of perfect love and perfect righteousness. And then he died the death that you and I deserved suffering the judgment of God for our sin, suffering the condemnation that our consciences rightly tell us we deserve. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And then he rose from the grave, proving that he is who he said he is, the Son of God, proving that his sacrifice was worthy for our freedom, worthy for our redemption. And so I call on you, trust in Jesus, hope in Jesus, believe in God, our Creator and our Savior. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.